What a joy it is once again to open up the Word of God. Another week gone by and we will now continue our time of worship through the teaching of God's Word. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you please open up to the book of Titus and we will continue our our series there this morning, this time in chapter 3. As you begin to turn there, my wife will surely attest to this, that I would have to be one of the most forgetful people in our family. Whether it be picking up the milk or picking up Noah, whether it be buying paper towel or buying a treadmill, that one I tend to forget deliberately, I always need a gentle reminder so as not to forget what I need to do and when I need to do it. In fact, there seems to be a whole industry created for remembering things, whether it be the reminder apps on our phone or the yellow sticky notes that we seem to plaster all over our homes. We, by nature, are a forgetful people, and we always have the tendency to forget. The Lord knows this, and the Lord gives us reminders through his word. Paul knows this also. And so we're going to see this morning in his word in our brief passage today, a reminder. He says at the start of verse 1 of chapter 3, remind them, remind them of these things. And we get a list of several instructions. All these things that we see before us today, they are things that we've all heard of before as Christians, but naturally we forget. They tend to pass from our memory, and so we need to be constantly reminded of them. If you have not already, please turn with me to Titus chapter 3. We've been working through this letter for some time now that Paul has written to his young friend and his mentoree, Titus. He was the pastoral delegate at the church on the island of Crete. And Titus there was there. He was responsible for setting the church in order with sound doctrine. And so Paul writes to help Titus as he establishes the church. Here in these verses this morning, he writes to Titus to tell the believers of the church seven relational reminders or relationship reminders. Seven reminders that would continue to help the believers in their daily relationships with other people. Context is always key. And so it's important to see where this verse fits in the context of the book. Note that these verses come smack in the middle of two of the greatest, most beautiful expressions of God's grace in the New Testament. If you have your Bibles open, see in chapter 2, verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, and it brings with it salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly desires. And if you look forward to chapter 3, verse 5, he says, He has saved us not by deeds of righteousness that we have done because of His mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Saviour. So that having been justified by His grace we may become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So right in between these two beautiful theological statements about the grace of God, we have these two verses, these two, these reminders, these commands. So with that in mind, let us read our text this morning. Titus chapter 2, 
verses 1, Titus chapter 3 rather, verses 1 and 2. The word of God says, Remind them, that is the believers, to be subject to rulers and to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, and to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. What we see in these verses this morning is that our relationship with God has necessary implications for how we live before God and how we live alongside of others. When we have been saved by grace through faith, and when we have been brought into fellowship with God, God expects that His grace is going to influence every area of our lives, and in particular the relationships that we have with those around us. So what we have here in our text is relationship reminders. As I said, Paul goes through seven of them in these verses, but for time's sake and preaching's sake this morning, we're going to compress them down to four groups, four reminders that ought to influence our relationships with other people. Our first relationship reminder this morning is that we are to be submissive and obedient to those in authority. Verse 1 says, Remind them, remind them to be submissive to those in authority and to be obedient. Obedience here is, is linked with our submissiveness to those in authority. So we are to take these two together. We are to be submissive and we are to be obedient to those that God has put over us in roles of authority. Now, the situation in Crete might well have been an unruly one, being part of the Roman Empire. But Paul is telling the believers there that it is their duty to be obedient and show submissiveness to those in authority. And he does this because they are appointed by God. This by no means is the only place in the New Testament that we have this mentioned. Look with me briefly, if you can, to Romans chapter 13, perhaps one of the most detailed accounts of our need to be submissive to those in authority. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are, and they are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinances of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword of nothing. For it is a ministry of, for, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And jump to verse seven. Render all render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear, and honour to whom honour. Paul is teaching in these verses here that God's sovereignty extends to the governing authorities. 
They serve a necessary function as God's servants to uphold the common good of society. He says they're going to punish those who do wrong and going to reward those who do good. Therefore, we must honour and respect them because they are appointed by God for their task. The same is also written by Peter in, in his book, 1 Peter chapter 2. No need to, to turn there with me. He says there that it is God's will that we would be subject to human institutions. We are to do it for God's sake because they are a part of God's plan to keep the peace and to judge wickedness. Peter says there emphatically, he says, honour the emperor. Now this was before widespread persecution, but the emperor of this time was by no means a Christian. But Peter says, we still need to honour this man who is keeping the peace, who is governing over our lives and is governing over the empire that we live in. The emperor fulfills a necessary function for the good of the people and has been appointed by God to do so. Notice with these three passages that we've just read, 1 Peter chapter 2, Romans 13 and, and Titus 3, there are no exception clauses here. It does not say, obey unless your conscience tells you otherwise. It does not say that anywhere. Now we can glean as we step back and get a sweep of all the scripture that our first allegiance must always come to the Lord God and his commands. If the commands of the government are ever in conflict with the commands of the Lord, God's word ultimately trumps. God's word is our highest authority. His authority is far greater than any other. A great example of this playing out can be seen in the book of Acts chapter 4. Peter is freed there after being imprisoned for proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Sanhedrin, who were the ruling body of the day, told Peter that you need to stop saying things about the resurrection, about the resurrected Christ. And Peter says in chapter 4, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have heard. Peter says there that there is a higher authority than the Sanhedrin. God's authority is greater. Now you could preach an entire sermon on, on what situations it might be right or, or wrong for us to resist the commands of, of those that are in government, but that's not the purpose of our text before us this morning. The point of this passage is to urge us as believers to be obedient, to be submissive, to be respectful to the authorities that God has put over us. That means that as believers, as Christians, whenever it is possible under God, we must be the most upstanding citizens in our communities. We ought to follow the laws, we ought to pay our taxes, and pay our council rates and do it willingly. And this also includes things such as speed limits and road rules, or downloading music illegally, or movies. These are rules, these are laws, and they are there for the protection and the peace of our society. And so we are to respect them. There's also more. Paul tells us in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that we are to pray for those in authority. This is one of the key ways that we can show respect to those in authority. We can show respect and honour to them. We must intercede for them. And Jeff often prays during his pastoral prayer on on Sunday mornings, he prays for those who lead over us 
and, and care for us, those in authority. The bottom line is that we are to honour, we are to honour those who are in authority, whether it be by our actions, whether it be by our words, or by our prayers. We may not agree with every policy our government enacts. There may be corruption and there may be wrongdoing by them. But Paul reminds us, by the way of Titus, that we are to obey them as God's servants as much as is possible under God. That's our first relationship reminder this morning. The second relationship reminder is found at the end of verse 1. It says, we are to be ready for every good work. Paul has extended his reminders first to our relationship with those in authority. Now, the reminder comes to our relationship with everyone else. We are to do good works beyond our government and to others as well. The concept of good works is a hallmark of the book of Titus and should also be a hallmark of God's people. We see chapter 2 verse 14 that God has purified for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And two verses later, we are reminded that we are a people ready to do good work. What does Paul mean by this command? Just taking it and reading it, it could be somewhat of an intimidating command. Are we to think that we have to do every good work? Are we responsible to do every possible work that is good? That would be completely overwhelming for us. We wouldn't know where to start. It would be paralyzing to think that we would have to do every possible good work that there is to do. I want to observe a couple of things that help us get a better understanding of what Paul is saying here. First, all of the other six commands in these verses, one and two, are to do with relationships or how we relate to other people. So we could expect that this would be the same, that this would be true of this command also. We want to do good work to people. And in particular, we want to do good work to people that we are in a relationship with. People that we see, people that we interact with, our neighbours. This does not necessarily have to be geographically, but, but the people that we know, the people that we come across. Certainly does not exclude doing acts of kindness to those we have no relationship with. There's certainly value in in sending things like a shoebox around the world with, with gifts to other children. There's good in those things. But the emphasis here is that we do good works in the lives of the people that are around us, in the lives of those people that we have relationships with, people we come in contact with, people in our communities, the guy at the petrol station, the bank teller, our kids' music or dance teacher, the teachers at schools, we want to do good work to the people in our families and most importantly, the people within our church. We want to serve them. We want to look for opportunities to do good to those that we have relationships with. Second thing to notice about this command is that Paul tells us to be ready, to be ready for good work. It's not just saying to do good work but rather to be ready. He wants us to be prepared. He wants us to be poised, anticipating opportunities to bless and care for those that are around us. The readiness here is just, just as much part of the command as the doing of the good work. If you're going to be ready to do something, you need to be prepared. 
You need to have it in your heart and you need to want to do it. Prepare for it. Just think you might have been given a task at work, something that requires planning. If your heart is not in it and you really do not want to do it, then then when the time comes for that task to be completed, your complete lack of preparation and readiness will inevitably shine through. I liken it to athletes or, or runners on a start line. I certainly could not do this myself, but you see them when they're on the start line, the adrenaline is pumping through their bodies, they're ready, they're waiting for that starting gun to go off. There's been preparation, there's, been e- there's eagerness there, there's anticipation, there's readiness. That kind of preparation and, and eagerness, the readiness there, we must have also. There are many opportunities that pass us by all the time. And if we are not ready, we will miss them. I had one of my work colleagues call me two weeks ago after, being, after trying for some time to get in contact with me. He was very upset and distressed about some of the things that he was dealing with in his family. The weeks leading up to this, this meeting with him, he had been trying to get in contact with me And me thinking that it was merely something to do with work, I failed. I failed in my readiness, in my eagerness to meet him and support him in his needs. But when we are prepared, when we have eyes to see, when we are ready to jump in, we let things go by if we are not ready. But if we have our attenders up and our radar on, those things will come across our paths more often and we know we should pray for opportunities to show goodness and kindness from which the Lord has shown forth in our hearts first. This can be somewhat of a, a dangerous prayer for us also, especially if you don't mean it, because God will graciously give opportunities whereby you can do good to others. We must ask God for a willing heart and a desire to be interrupted. I think one of the things that commonly gets in the way of us doing good work is that, is that we control our schedules. We fill our schedules. We tend to have everything planned out, every minute of every day accounted for, and we simply don't have any room to be used in any other way. When you wake in the morning, pray that the Lord would grant you today to see the, with the eyes to see good work that he would have you do. Pray for eagerness. Prepare yourself. We need to be ready. And for that readiness, we need to look to our Lord. We need to think about Christ's humility. We need to think about Christ's suffering. We need to think about his death and his resurrection and his promise to return in glory. The more we know our Lord, the more we are in his presence, the more our thoughts are changed by his spirit, the more ready and prepared we will be to do good, whatever the situation that he brings upon our paths. Paul reminds us we have to be ready for every good work. Our third reminder, looking to verse 2, we are to be free from slander and free from quarrelsome speech. Taking another two of Paul's commands and turning them into one, all to say, watch our speech, watch our tongue. Psalm 34 Verse 7 says, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Paul is 
literally warning us against blaspheming against someone else. And he follows it up by saying, don't get into quarrels with them either. In both these areas, our growth in holiness necessitates a greater control of our tongue. Any speech that maligns or or tears down another person is out of bounds for the believer. Any speech that incites or engages in argumentation is out of bounds for the believer. We need to harness our words for the Lord and not for the devil's work. The unbridled tongue is a deadly weapon in Satan's toolbox. James compares it in his letter, compares the tongue with a spark. Though it is small, it can set an entire forest on fire. So the tongue, so is the tongue when we give it to do evil. And Paul says here in verse 2, speak evil of no one. He's talking about slander, about gossip, lying, and every other kind of malicious talking. It doesn't mean that we're not able to point out the evil in someone else's life. It just means that we're not able to talk evil about them. Paul himself already in this letter has pointed out and addressed the evil of the false teachers and that he is warning us about. So we can critique, we can evaluate, and we can confront, but that's not what this verse is talking about. Paul wants to remind us that as believers, we are not to talk evil, we are not to assume the worst, And we're not to talk the worst about somebody else. As Christians, we know these things. We've heard them since we came to faith. And and we know that we are not to give our tongues to gossip or to malicious talk. And when you put those kind of labels on it, gossip and, and malicious talk, it's very clear that we don't do these things. But I wonder if we begin to evaluate the course of our week or or the course of our day, and the conversations that we might have with people, we can see that this, we easily forget this, whether it be we are carried away in a moment, feeling the pressure to conform amongst our work colleagues, whatever it is, it's easy to slip into the kind of conversation with your spouse or, or with your friend over a coffee that slanders and brings other people down. Before you know it, you're having a a full-on conversation about someone else's apparent sin without ever consulting them of it first. It does not take much to slide into that kind of conversation, even if you think you have the other person's best interests in mind. Or think about how we sometimes find ourselves in quarrels or arguments. Maybe you've done this recently with your kids or with your spouse maybe with a work colleague or a friend, as a, as a build-up of frustration and that makes you defensive. And you might go on the attack yourself. And before you know it, you're in a full-on quarrel. But Paul says, avoid it. Avoid quarreling. Isn't it often that our quarrels are a result of our own selfishness and our own pride? Sometimes we can be really passionate about the truth of something. We want to defend the truth. But often our quarrels and our bickering and our fighting, they don't come out of a passion to defend God's glory, but rather they come out of a passion to defend ourselves. They are to stand, we are to stand up for our own selfishness and pride. We don't want people to find fault with us or have any blame on us. James tells us that it is our passions that are at war within us. We desire something that we're not getting, and so we continue in the argument or the quarrel. 
We can be consumed with being justified in someone else's eyes. I want to convince this person that I am right, that I am without blame. We tend to be more concerned about the view of others rather than resting in the justification that we already have in Christ. So how is it that God's grace trains us to avoid slanderous and quarrelsome speech? Ultimately, Jesus says that our speech is an overflow of what is truly in our hearts. So if we want different speech, then we need a different heart. We need the Spirit to bear its fruit in our lives. We need to confess our sins of anger, of pride, and of jealousy regularly before the Lord. So we can be cleansed, so we can be refreshed from the dirtiness of the sin that lingers in our lives. If our hearts are becoming hardened and and muddied up with our sin, with our pride, we think we can never be wrong. When we get tested, which will come, when we get tested our mouths will display exactly what is in our hearts. So if we want pure speech, we need clean hearts. We need to practice confession. We need to grow in our holiness through God's word. We need to be regularly inviting God to search our hearts, to search the hidden places, to get rid of the hidden prides, the idolatries and the fears inside because those sins will only show themselves in our speech, in our content in our anger, in our disputing with others. God's grace, as we come to Him, as we lean on Him, will protect our speech as we are renewed by it day by day. Our speech will be protected as God renews our hearts. There is no shortcut to holiness. We must spend time with Him each day in prayer and in His Word, resting in the hope that He gives then as we do this, our speech will continue to be changed by him. This is our third reminder. We are to be free from quarrelsome, free from malicious talk. We are to have new hearts and clean hearts. Lastly, our fourth reminder. We are to be gentle and perfectly courteous towards all people. Paul first reminds the believers how we ought just how we ought not to speak, rather, being slanderous and, and quarrelsome. And now he says the things that we are to say. We are to speak with gentleness and with courteousness. Our demeanour is to be graceful and kind. We are not to be edgy or harsh with people. This does not mean that as Christians we are to be boring. God made an infinite variety of personalities. And as he redeems those personalities, he will transform them into a unique expression of his creation. Our personalities might be one of confidence or of being outspoken or or being loud. But regardless of our personalities, if we are a child of God's, our personalities will be marked by tenderness, by kindness and by gentleness. He's saying that as believers we are to be characterized by warmth rather than abrasiveness or irritability. I find a a good test for examining and determining where we are with gentleness in our lives is to examine the relationships that we have, to examine the relationships we have with those who are in less authority than us or those who have less influence than us. 
Because when we think we can get away with being unkind, that is when our sin becomes more apparent. An example, parents. Would your kids say that you are gentle with them, especially when they have disobeyed you? Husbands, would your wives say that you are tender with them, especially when she has many more things to tell you about her day and you would rather leave the conversation and begin something else? Managers and supervisors, would your employees say that you are kind, especially when the crunch is beginning to, to, to come to fruition, when the things are getting tight, the bottom line is coming, the pressure is on to get results? Think about the infinite power that God has. He could unleash it all at any point to squash any one of his enemies. And yet Jesus Christ, at his first coming, did not come to demonstrate his power as a conquering warrior. Instead he came, even whilst we were his enemies, he demonstrated his power through meekness, his humility on the cross, his dying in our place for our sins. Instead of lording his power over us, He came and gave up his life for us. We want to have this kind of attitude, but but frankly, at some points, it's just easier to insist on our authority. We seem to demand obedience rather than showing the kindness that flows forth from the gospel. Some of us may need to repent for the way we've treated others this week. Holy Spirit speaks to us through his word. It challenges us. It teaches us and changes us so that we ought to be gentle to those around us. Paul's last command here is to show perfect courteousness, to be perfectly courteous. Or perhaps better said, we ought to show all courtesy to all people. The repetition of the word all here is an emphasis It's a strong statement. There is no limit to the amount of courtesy you are to show and no limit to the recipients of that courtesy. We are to show perfect courtesy. This is true humility. We are to have every consideration for every person. Paul isn't concerned here with our our manners or, or our etiquette, but rather his concern here is with our hearts. His concern is the lingering sin nature that we wrestle with until we come to glory. As humans, we have this innate ability to, when we interact with people, to to size them up. When we meet somebody new, we have this little calculation that goes on in our heads to determine who owes who more honour or more courtesy. For example, you might show up at your doctor and you see this, this man or woman, they are trained, they are experts in their field, and you need their help, their services. And so we do show them, we show them great respect and great honour. But I wonder, do we pay the same respect to the person that interrupts us in conversation? Or to the person that we discount as someone who we just don't get along with? We immediately discount them and notch them several courtesy levels down. How about when you're at work or when you're at home? You're happy to show great courtesy to your bosses or to your managers or to your family at home. But when there's tradesmen or maintenance crew around needing to do some work just for a little while, it can be easier to just avoid eye contact with them all because we perceive them to be on a different courteous level to others. 
God is concerned about our hearts. He wants to remind us that we do not determine who we show courtesy to based on their status in this world. Jesus had every status and yet he didn't consider his equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he humbled himself. He humbled himself, obedient, a servant to the point of death. And for those in Christ, we honour our Lord through humility and through courtesy, through the consideration that we are to show all people. This is our fourth reminder this morning. We need to, in the strength that God gives us, in the power that Christ gives us, through the helper of the Holy Spirit, with the guidance from the Word of God, we need to make every effort. We are to work hard to grow in our holiness. What's helpful for me with these two verses this morning is that this is a picture of what holiness looks like, especially in terms of the relationships that we have in life. We must pay honour and submission and respect to those that God has placed over us. We must be ready for every good work. We must be courteous and kind and gentle to those who the Lord brings across our path. We have to keep ourselves from abrasive, quarrelsome, negative and malicious talk. Obeying these commands by, by no means will ever save us. We fall short. And that's why we need the Lord's grace. That's why we need chapter 2, verse 11, and chapter 3, verse 5. But as we grow in this grace, as we see that this grace is the basis for the relationship, our most important relationship, that with the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore grace ought to inform every other relationship that God has given us to enjoy. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you. We are in awe of who you are. You are the transcendent God, the one who reigns for all eternity. And yet, Lord, you are imminent. You are with us. We thank you for this, Lord. We thank you again for your word this morning. Lord, speak into our hearts, we pray. Give us an attentiveness, Lord, as we read your word. May our hearts be changed and renewed by it. We thank you again. Take us to our homes in safety now, we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Please stand just briefly for our, our benediction this morning. From Romans chapter, 13, chapter 15, verse 13. It says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of His Holy Spirit. Amen.